welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dustin Kava, and we have a really, really awesome guest today, Raven. Uh, how you doing, Raven? Not too bad, Dustin. Thanks for having me, man. Um, I'm sorry to hear that BC couldn't make it, but wishing him the best. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I was telling you earlier, I have not seen BC that sick in a long time. So it's just kind of one of those things. And we've been trying to get you on the show for a couple weeks now. We had some scheduling things, some technical difficulties. And so uh, I am just so, so thrilled that you're here with me. Oh, yeah, me too, man. And you're right. We've definitely had a lot of back and forth, but I'm glad we were finally able to carve out some time. I'm excited to be here. I, um, you know, usually... BC and I would banter and stuff like that prior to the show. But, you know, I was without him here. I'm just I really just want to kind of dive straight into just what the heck your, your past and kind of what's been keeping you, you know, inspired and stuff. Now, um, I was going through some of your history and I realized that you actually, I think, graduated from the same class as another one of our uh, guests that we had on our show, Kathy Reeder from um University of Maryland's cannabis program. Absolutely. Yeah, I know Kathy. She's a real rock star. That's amazing. I didn't realize she was already on. Heck yeah. Um, she is so awesome. And she, I remember her, she was actually telling us about a, a restaurant that she owned prior to getting into the industry. And she is just, she, she is such a hip person. But and when I saw that you went through the same program, it made me smile because it really is an awesome program. It was um, can you just kind of give me a little background information of what made you kind of want to kind of enter into that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, feel free to interrupt me at any point if I'm going off because it's kind of a long story. Um, <laughs> so okay. I grew up in West Virginia myself. Um, my mother was a Filipino immigrant to West Virginia, um, to America, traveled around a lot until I was born in the heart of Appalachia there. Um, so as I was growing up, I saw a lot of people affected with opioid use disorder. I saw the opioid epidemic completely ravish the landscape I grew up in, um, including the people and the personalities and the healthcare system. Just so many things went downhill very quickly. Um, so after I graduated college and stuff, I mean, I was getting more mature into my own. I've always had a healthy understanding and a healthy curiosity with cannabis and plant medicines. Um, in my household, my mom always made sure to keep it organic. But they always went away for tea time whenever I was younger. I had to leave the room for tea time. And it wasn't until I was about 13, 14. I was like, man, tea time smells kind of funny. I think I know this smell. Um, and then I you know, went through college, got my bachelor's degree in biology, um, kind of floated around for a little bit, trying to understand what my particular place was and how I wanted to utilize my interests and my skill set with not only how I want to build my own professional path and help as many people. So eventually I got hired on by a cannabis testing lab here in Pennsylvania, which was really awesome gig. I was able to go to all the grows in Pennsylvania, provide a lot of hands-on technical consulting in regards to like how to avoid certain pests, how to test properly, how to sample properly, how to make a clean room, proper sterilization, stuff like that. Um, but what I really liked was kind of like expedited experience because I was going to all the grows and they were doing everything so differently and I was learning everything all the time. And with that, it kind of, it was almost like the aha moment, but it wasn't even like an aha. It was almost like, wow, you're really an idiot for not putting this together earlier. Because it was just like, <laughs> well, this is this is my background. This is what like my family, I mean, my bills have been paid with this stuff my whole life. You know, unbeknownst, <laughs> un un unbeknownst to me, I mean, I'm just a little kid running around, but unbeknownst to me that this is how my my livelihood has been. So 
I entered into the master's program while I was working there at the lab, um, learned a lot, a lot about pharmacology, a lot about standardization of testing, um, product formulation, all the clinical aspects of it, the therapeutic aspects, the negative effects, um, everything. You can go check on their website, all, everything there. And what I really enjoyed, though, was being able to work as their director of education for the student organization. And that was yeah. nice. Yeah, I love that one a lot because I was just building educational stuff that the school wasn't necessarily supplying. So extraction stuff, terpene stuff, bringing in um, guest speakers. And, you know, I got involved with the Cleveland School of Cannabis kind of through that, Mises Werner and stuff. So making those connections and getting able to see the, the industry on a bigger picture. I just feel that there's a, a lot of work to be done, especially coming from a side where patients and people are kind of on the wayside. I'm, yeah, as a patient myself, that's how I always felt kind of even prior to legalization in Ohio. And even now that's kind of the, the feeling I get. If I talk to my primary care physician about my prescription, there's a lot of, I can just, they, they don't necessarily want to talk about it. They don't necessarily acknowledge the benefits of it. Um, and I, I've noticed that when you, as you were building some of this curriculum, were you, did you actually be, were you, how do I explain this? Um, as you are building this curriculum and actually teaching it to your students, at what point did you say to yourself, like the, the, the classroom setting isn't necessarily what I want, you know, shifting into the podcast, shifting into plant save my life. How, you know, I know that there's a difference between one-on-one -on -one or, or a class of 20 and scaling your voice with, with the podcast. What made you kind of like get into that realm of educating there? Yeah, dang, that's a good question, Dustin. Good question, Dustin. Um, I would say that I eventually I have a role currently teaching at Penn West University, the cultivation science and their cannabis science program there, which I really very much like. But it's something that I noticed was missing out of that program and any other cannabis education that I've been involved in is that, like you said, just kind of the true patient perspective. Um, throughout, we talk a lot about progress and market changes and different innovations and in actual products, but a lot of the time the patients just kind of get lost in the static. Um, I mean, I've I've worked with cannabis professionally for a number of years. It's, it's pretty much my entire life at this point. Um, whenever I talk to this about even some of my best friends, they're talk about the podcast, even their representation of what I'm talking about is they'll look at me and just be like, oh, so it's about people getting high. And then, you know, at that point, it's like, no, man, this is exactly why I'm doing it, because it's not about people getting high. It's about all the people waiting in line at the dispensary, because finally they can have relief that doesn't have to come with a bear logo on it. <laughs> yeah, I come, I owned a retail, like a head shop, a high-end glass gallery. Nice. And, you know, coming from that spectrum, even them, you know, like that's the kind of perception that that I've always gotten was, oh, you owned a head shop. You just want people to get stoned. You know, you're just selling fucking bongs, man. And it's like, actually, we were always some of the forefront in educating for a community that wasn't even necessarily allowed to talk about it. Um, and we had to navigate all the nuances of payment processing and marketing and how to acquire that customer and do it all 15, 20 years before any of these, you know, any of my local state, you know, cannabis companies even had that, that concept that they wanted to do that. And so when I think of it like that, I, I've, I've noticed that I've seen that across the board and that's what was so empowering to me about the shop was being able to 
kind of facilitate the now, not using old, old logic from 25 years ago and actually saying, no, as the science that applies it today, this is what we are thinking. This is kind of the thought process. And as we mature into that, this is where I think that's going to go. This is why as a patient, this is going to affect you differently. And I, I think that you just, you I've listened to your show. I probably listened to 10 hours or so of your show. Oh, and I, I have to yeah. say, man, you fucking rock at your questions are extremely thought out. And it's amazing how knowledgeable you are at every one of these damn topics. And to me, it's like, who the fuck are you, man? You're actually slowly becoming one of my heroes in this because you just, <laughs> it's at your perspective on things is not coming necessarily from your, how to say this. You're coming. I like that. You're coming from the scientific background, not uh, this is just, uh, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. You're, you're coming from it, from a wellness routine, from a plant science, from a holistic approach, as opposed to that. I'm getting stoned. Let's get, you know, let's get high. Yeah, exactly. I think that there's that was what was missing in the discourse was the let's get stoned, let's get high, let's talk about vibing, which definitely has its time and place. That's awesome too. And I mean, there's a therapeutic value to that for sure. Um, and then there's also the strictly clinical stories where we talk about the pharmacology and the pharmacodynamics and how certain cannabinoids interact with certain receptors. And I've found that that you know, fence can be awfully, awfully dry at times, and it doesn't really put into perspective the people that aren't interested in the science. They aren't interested in that. They're interested in the real, true human connection. I, I guess at its core, it's really a human interest thing. Do you think that? Do you think that the psychedelic market is going to take a large portion of its cues from the cannabis market, or do you kind of feel that the psychedelic market is? paving its own way and how it educates and how, how it's marketed, how, how they're planning on marketing. Yeah, that's another really good question. Um, I forgive me if this is a bit out there, but I believe wholeheartedly in the spirit of plants and fungi. I mean, anyone that's interacted with psychedelics can say with some sort of reasonable sense that they've interacted with another consciousness or that they have felt their consciousness shift. And I think that that alone is enough to drive a certain, shift in the paradigm that we've seen with the cannabis industry. I mean, the cannabis industry, we're all very privileged and blessed to be able to purchase it legally, of course, but it's not really legal if you have to have $2 million in the bank to grow it. It's not really legal <laughs> if you can still get pulled over and go to jail for it. Um, so I think that there's definitely a lot of things that we can take from that. Um, I hope that the lessons that psychedelics teach us about the interconnectivity of all of us can hopefully ensure that we don't make the same mistakes in terms of mom and pop shops, MSOs, and just the gambit of what's wrong with the cannabis industry in its current present form. However, I think there's still a lot of good cues we could take from it in terms of like getting it out to the patients, educating patients on certain types of, uh, you know, certain types of cultivars and strains whenever it comes to cannabis and different types of mushrooms and psychedelics and how to take that in from a harm reduction standpoint, I think could also be beneficial. Sorry, I know that's a bit out there. No, 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 no. I, I actually, I agree wholeheartedly. I wonder, do you think that it was your background of growing up in a household that supported plant medicine and understood that, that kind of got you thinking in that way early or do you think this was that that was just something you're noticing as you 
have been in the industry for, you know, X amount of years? Um, well, I would say even before I was involved professionally, I was still like watching from a side, hoping to get involved, of course, and just realizing which states were doing it right, which states were doing it wrong, the importance of social equity and just like making sure that it's a playing, that it's a field that all these companies can play at besides just the huge ones. Um, and that patient needs don't really just go by the wayside. That's something that's always been on my mind. Um, truthfully, what I credit to is uh, when I was really young, my mother made me watch a lot of like George Carlin and a lot of that National Geographic show Taboo, um, <laughs> which absolutely incredible. If you're not familiar, basically what it was, it explained different parts of society that were taboo from uh, like drugs to fetishism to black markets to counterfeits to all kinds of different things that were considered taboo and or personalities or family choices, religions, etc. And the core of it was that it's only taboo if we make it taboo. And that my family and my immediate community, we saw these plant medicines as not taboo. They're only treated that way if you if you treat it that way. If you create this underground black market with it and you you stigmatize it and you stigmatize the use. Um, so yeah, in, in regards to George Carlin, I feel that maybe I was just thinking a bit too critically about the systems at hand whenever I was a young <laughs> that, that combination and a healthy interest in herbalism and plant science, I think was just a good storm for me. I, uh, I, I think that's funny. You make a great point about that taboo of that conversation. And I think of that as it applies to a lot of other things, the conversation of money to your children about what you yeah. make or what the bills in the household are. Um, and just going on and on. I think that's a, a really, really great point. I wonder if, I wonder if, you know, like I, I know what it's like to come from a household that to kind of be ostracized for the exact opposite. It was taboo in my household. And I actually was sent to a behavior modification school, which was essentially a, a, exactly that. It was a, a high end, high security facility for children across the United States. Dang, and I'm sorry to hear that. No, yeah, no, no, not at all. You know what? A lot of this stuff, um, in fact, there's a Netflix documentary coming out about the organization. I actually I had to start a riot in order to get the fuck out of the place. But that's a whole nother story. But the truth is, is that that's what the taboos do. That's what this lack of being able to have that conversation and just that perception can put someone in a position that one, their safety is compromised, their confidence is compromised, their feeling of self, their wellness, their ability to act it, you know, actively interact within their world. All of those things, just the simplest little thing of just, is it okay to have this conversation? And that changes everything. It changes their movement through that growth or that wellness. And yeah, I, I, I just, I really love that you, you brought up that point. I think that's incredible. Um, what, Working in the cannabis industry, you you started in PA, correct? And then you've kind of shifted. You, yeah. Um, so I started in PA, working at the lab. Um, then I worked for an, a grower here in Pennsylvania, a dispensary here in Pennsylvania. Um, and then I started working kind of freelance with compliance-based stuff, helping people with regulations, helping people grasp how they can pass their regulations from an actual scientific operations perspective. What I really enjoyed with that was more so the education, just being able to sit down in a boardroom, prepare a slide deck and be like, so this is, these are your options. This is what's allowed. Um, this is why it works. These are the products patients want. And this is why. Um, so I really, really enjoyed doing that. Opened up my my 
consulting agency, Anthea Wellness. Um, it's truthfully just me. Um, it's a lot of work, but uh, with that, I decided to start the podcast. I teach at the university level, and I've honestly worked in a number of markets, international, here stateside. It's been it's been a very, very interesting experience. Um, the amount of people that are willing and ready to get involved in the cannabis industry versus those who are willing and ready to have like the money to dump into the cannabis industry. <laughs> the overlap is definitely way too off there. So, well, let's talk about that a little bit. As they're dumping money in, they're obviously racing to the bottom right now as we figure out exactly where everything is in this country. So when you, as you're having these conversations with them, how are you, what is that conversation about the race to the bottom? You know they're about to invest two or $10 million into something, and yet you know that that's inevitably what's happening right now. What are some of the things that you try to remind them as they are racing there? Yeah, um, that's, so a lot, of, a lot of the clients that I work with, thankfully, have been in the industry or ancillary around the industry. Um, sometimes it's a little bit more plant touching or they're just like a startup company. They're, it's a broad variety. Um, but as far as having those conversations go, it's they're difficult. They're really difficult to have those conversations. I try to point them in directions of unnamed shareholders and you know try to look at what the, what the stock market has looked like and what's going on in other states and how you can mimic that. And I don't wanna to say too much on the air or anything. Um, I'll just say that for the most part, with enough dollar signs behind it, a lot of people don't believe that that would ever happen to them. Aha, yes. I mean, <laughs> it's, I mean, the truth is, is that's any business owner. To be an entrepreneur, you have to have that crazy fucking attitude where you're jumping off the cliff. It doesn't fucking matter. You know you're going to fly. It's not, will I fly? Is this a maybe? You're jumping off with that concept of it, it's going to be. And so it's one of those things that it, that's what I always find surprising with a lot of entrepreneurs is they never necessarily give enough credit to how much luck is actually involved in their job. I actually, you know, like it takes in my, in my world, it is 70% luck for success and 30% absolute skill, absolute understanding of your field, of your industry and, and what you're going to do, have a strategic plan in place. And with that being said, that's 30%. That's if you're kicking ass, you're still only got 30% of, mm -hmm. of what it is, you know? And so as I have worked with clients within the industry and we've worked with cultivators, we've worked with, you know, um, other ancillary, you know, businesses, I kind of do web development and stuff for them. Now I kind of see how to say this, you see multiple levels of entry points for these entrepreneurs. I see some entrepreneurs that seem to have just had access to the capital and that is what put them in the position. And they were just like, I love smoking weed. So, and I have access to this capital. I'm going to start this, this company within the industry. And then I have others who, you know, have absolutely like, they never had the access to the capital really wasn't there and they have kicked and clawed their way all the way up to the top just for that license, just for that ability to do it. And I can see the difference in caliber to how those companies are run like that. It's huge. It's a huge difference. And so I wonder if as you're, as you're seeing the industry evolve, are you seeing 
Are you seeing more and more outside non-users, non-smokers enter into the ownership process, enter into that, like the, yeah, that shareholder side of things and not really understand or have that perception of how it ever helped themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can speak for Pennsylvania and other markets that I've been involved in, but yeah, that definitely seems to be the biggest hurdle is that on the hourly level, on the hourly level, it's a lot of people who are passionate, willing to learn more, um, willing to work their asses off to make sure that they're putting out quality medicine for people. Um, but I feel that once you start getting up that chain and you're no longer at the hourly level and you start getting into the boardrooms, there is a lot of those who don't have, um, they're just cannabis naive. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm happy to invite them in. Um, but I always like to make sure that they know that it's, we're not cutting corners here though. It's not, this isn't the world to do that in. So do you think that, have you ever heard of the theory of, forget the actual name of it, but it's essentially this theory that you will eventually be promoted to a level of incompetence. You <laughs> like the way, the way companies are structured today, essentially, if you are uh, an engineer and you are doing really well at your job, eventually they're going to say, in order for you to get this promotion, you're going to have to manage the engineers. You're going to have to be the head of them. And that means that you have a whole different type of skill set that isn't necessarily in the books, in the math, in the field. Um, and do you think that that's where we're at is we have that promoted to the level of incompetence? Or do you think that it's just uh, too new of an industry? And so it's not necessarily, there is no incompetent. It's not been around long enough to have that. Um, I don't know. That's another great question. I would say that it's kind of a mix that there's a fair amount of people, a fair amount of employees who are there willing to learn up higher on the chain in the boardrooms, but not necessarily to that level of incompetence yet. I feel that everyone running that has something to bring from another industry. Um, I would imagine someone who's let's just going to say like a VP of sales likely has that sales experience prior to that cannabis experience or vice versa. Um, but like you said, it's, it's pretty new industry. Um, it's a wide variety of those who are, you know, live by the plant, die by the plant. And then those who are like live by the dollar, die by the dollar. So it's always <laughs> just important to make that distinction and see who's who. I So do you think that it's just a matter of who they're having to be responsible to? You know, is it just like yeah. as you as you're a CEO, you know, I'm responsible to my stakeholders. And so the, the dollar is the conversation I'm usually having with them as opposed to how many patients have we helped out or what is that messaging or, you know. Yeah, I think that's a, a yeah. good point. I mean, I hate to say it, but even in the um, the patient-facing portions of the industry that I've worked in, it is very much still conversations dominated by the dollar. And, you know, I, people like me and you work here for the outcome, not the income. So it's quite nice. I, I wonder if um, – I wonder what it's going to take to get that to shift. You know, it, it reminds me of that, like uh, – it reminds me of how often they're buying higher THC products. Like in California, 96% of sales came from over 22% or something like that. Yeah. You know, and so it kind of, to me, it's, it's that same, that same classification. Oh, I want the lowest dollar amount and it needs to be the highest percentage THC. And those are the only two things I'm interested in right now. But again, as a patient in Ohio, that makes fucking sense. I could, 
in Ohio, it's three times more for my medicine as it is for me to go to Michigan, like yep. three times more for the same monthly amount. It, it reminds me of like my grandmother wanting to go to fucking Canada for her prescriptions and, and it, come it, back exactly. down. You know, it's, it makes a big difference when I look at the amount of money I have allocated for my wellness for the entire year. And, and so, yes, I feel like I'm, I don't get to necessarily have even as a, my own as a patient who cares about this, the same conversations about terpenes, the same conversations about really anything, even what form I wanted in to induce exactly what I needed to. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really what it comes down to. Like you said, is who they're answering to and who, who their priority is. If their priority is shareholders or board members, or if their priority is actually going to be the patient experience. I mean, a $70 eighth or out of Connecticut, I saw a $110 one gram cartridge. Um, <laughs> that's, I mean, who's, who's that for? I mean, they know that the, they know that the patients desperately want, and they've desperately been lobbying for God, a decade, two decades in some States. Um, and to, to release a product like that is kind of like a slap in the face to patient advocacy groups. So do you think it's the company that's doing that? Or do you think it's the state that has put so much regulations or so much or has had so little amount of licenses or something that they've created a market that has that type of control? Like, do you think it's, where do you think that is coming from? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Just kind of like your experience with the industry. Um, what I've seen is that it seems to come up from the distribution side. <laughs> it seems to come from the distribution side because the wholesale isn't necessarily making a super, super lucrative amount of money compared to the distribution side, it would seem. Um, but with that said, I know that regulations, lab testing being a really expensive rule. In, in Pennsylvania, we have to test at the harvest stage and the final form stage. And depending on, I mean, that's testing over twice before it's finished and then again for stability twice. And with that said, that's pretty expensive. That adds up per lot if you're doing it every five pounds, every 25 pounds based on the regulations and what you're testing. I mean, that can definitely add up. And with that, as every other manufacturing type industry or production type industry, it just goes into how much did it cost to actually produce this one gram of sellable product. So I think some places between taxes, licensing, um, testing requirements, packaging requirements, um, and all the things to keep them compliant, that can be really expensive. But is it so I, I don't know where the bulk of that expense is coming from because no one gram should be $115. I don't know where the bulk of that is coming from. Yeah, that's, that is exactly it, especially, well, and you'll see it in the same, a same state. You'll say, you know, you'll see it between one or two different organizations. I mean, like one can be selling a gram for 80 while the other is selling it for 110. And what exactly, where did that happen? I've, I think you're right at the distribution level. It's certainly, it's not really happening at the wholesale level. There are certain deemed markups that are industry standard across the board. I haven't really seen a dispensary say, we're not going to mark this up that much to, to another one. It's, it's industry-wide what those numbers are looking like. And even on the cultivation side in that, gosh, I've seen so much variance to degree in their profit margins just based on the packaging alone, how yeah. they're packaged, you know, choosing a certain package for a certain reason cuts 20% into that profit margin alone. And that's a pretty incredible thing when you think of the distributor is not thinking about that. They, it doesn't matter to them. They get that product, they know that rate, and they know what they have to charge extra to get their 
their markup out of it as they push through. Do you, do you think that, you know, at one point I heard Virginia thinking about setting up maybe something like a state store where they supply, they get all of the product and then they dish it out themselves to all the dispensaries or state stores across the state. Um, kind of like the, the liquor licenses in Ohio and such. Do you, at what point do you think like, do you think that is a better system? Do you think that that would change the way prices are? Or do you think that the market itself is kind of going to dictate that? Ooh, that's, I, there are so many things that go into that. I would, what I think would be the goal is not even a state store system. I always try to say that the, the KPI, if you will, like the performance indicator that we're doing good is that anyone can grow it. Like don't have to, you like anyone can home grow. I know that's a long shot and I know that's a blanket answer, but I think that a state store, it may do something with the market. I'm not sure how that would play a role in that. Um, I think that that hopefully will still leave room for like craft cannabis and small producers not just necessarily MSOs and large producers. But ultimately, I think that the thing that will stabilize the market is if, you know, rescheduling, of course, um, canceling the prohibition of it, um, and then allowing home grow, I think would also stabilize the market. I think a lot of people are worried that home grow is going to like take from the market at all. But God, that's it, such a silly notion. That, that's it's notion never has. Yeah, it, 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 it never has to begin with. And it's it's one of those things where, not everybody a wants to not everybody a can or has the time to put in it or wants to take the risk in terms of effort to end result um and again this is like i think about my wellness and i say yes i would love to be in that level of control of it but again i am i am using this because of pain management the amount of you know like there's certain reasons if i can't even yeah. pick up you know, something or, if, you know, there's so many reasons to why uh, so many patients just would not have access to manage that on their own. Yeah, um, absolutely. I Do you, is there any place throughout the country that you think craft cannabis actually has a really good chance of, of, of setting a footing against some of these bigger operations? Yeah, I think, um, California, Oregon, um, the West Coast is doing a great job at making sure that that craft long-standing legacy of growing and breeding is still alive outside of MSOs. Um, I mean, of course, you got cookies and some other ones that are branching out like that, that have come from that legacy market into the, the now legal market. But I think that there's, especially with this new potential legislation allowing for states to allow for interstate commerce of cannabis, I think that could potentially also provide a lot more benefits for craft growers to not necessarily have to license out everywhere, but to be able to provide their products to other states. So um, I would say probably over in the West Coast, um, Oklahoma as well is doing really, <laughs> I would like to see what they're doing because whatever they legalize, they had like I think it was like over 10,000 home grower licenses or something. So it's like, I want to know what they're doing up there. I want to know how they have one on of the, the Yeah. They have one of the highest percentages of any state of people who are registered as patients for their cards. Um, and I mean, yeah, it's just the wild West in Oklahoma. To me, they're the, I love their extreme because it really gives us this like freewheeling experiment to kind of see what the fuck could happen when there really are no rules um, or very little rules. I also kind of like the way Michigan was, a, is thinking about 
craft cannabis now with their micro licenses and the way Absolutely. that, you know, when it was originally structured, it almost seemed like there was no possible way any micro business would be able to succeed in it. But as they've restructured that some, it really seems like they might have a chance right now. And so that's kind of been on my hotspot list to keep watching. Um, Caleb, yeah, that's actually a very good point. Yeah, Caleb that's a very good point. Michigan always yeah. got to stay on that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was going to say Caleb Waybright, of, uh, who's watching right now live with us, has actually made a comment saying he did. Maybe it's his inner cynic, but state run or state operated stores doesn't necessarily sound like the way. And the only reason why I want to suggest a state store or say why it could have the potential is because when you look at state stores, if I got my liquor license, if I actually acquired the license. And so if I think of social standing groups getting more access to licenses like um, minority groups or, or disenfranchised from the past getting access to these licenses, what the benefit of our state stores do is they do not have to necessarily put up the capital for the inventory. It how much space, what does the license account for? And the state literally sends them every ounce of a product and puts it up for them almost on, um, almost as if it's, as if it's like a, fuck, what's the word? Not a consignment or something like that. And so if I think of companies or organizational groups that just do not have the same level of capital, that is an even keel thing that allows it to not necessarily be how much money do I have to stock and make this store look properly. The state's going to provide that. And I can focus on customer wellness, how we communicate, what's this or, you know, the process itself and differentiate that way. And so that's the only thing where I'm like, is this an even keel in the marketplace? Is this, you know, but that's, I'm glad he brought up that point or kind of made that that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely like to see some states that are implementing that model. I know they were talking about it here in Pennsylvania as well. And yeah, either it's intercynics or there was definitely a lot of pushback on that. Um, I think mostly because they want to make sure it's not just nothing wrong. I think there's a time and place for a dispensary where you just pop in, get what you want. Um, you can leave, you get, you know, sorted by highest THC, get whatever you'd like, get the gummies, get the slaps, whatever, get the edibles. And then, I mean, I think there's also a time and place for a dispensary that's a little bit more caring, a little bit more compassionate, helping you through the process, helping you pick, seeing how it's going for you. Um, I think both of those, the state store sounds more like the former, but I think the latter is what the industry truly needs. But of course, time and place for both. And exactly. And I wonder if, you know, it's that when you hear state store, yeah, you're like, oh, no, they're certainly not going to care about training their staff and stuff like that. But that's organizational led. And so top down type of things of what is the goal of this, this organization? Yeah. Why are we all here? And what is that team team goal? Um, when you so when gosh, I'm trying to like think through what are some of the harsh realizations then within the industry as, as you see, as you're working through in the consulting business, what are some of those things that you find yourself not being able to educate them themselves on or like when I owned the store, I knew when I hired somebody, some of the things I couldn't train them, like their mothers had to have teach them this before I ever got them into the store. And some of that was just, being able to smile when someone walks in the door. That's not something I can train you. It's something that you have to have ingrained in you to want to do when they come in. And so 
when you are consulting with these organizations and you're working through a lot of personality types, what are some of the harsh realizations or things that you've told yourself? Like, I just can't train this. Like I can tell you it's important, but I can't train that ethos. Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, there's a few of them that we've already touched on already. Um, for instance, it's not a fast cash business. You're not going to get rich growing and licensed selling weed in any state, um, for sure. <laughs> not anytime soon. Um, that's why we podcast, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> also, trying to teach, trying to go over that hump of that it's not about getting high. Like, there's a time and place for getting high. Don't get me wrong. I love it. We all do. Um, nothing wrong with that. But that's not what it's about at the end of the day. Um, having that conversation and explaining that I, I'm a firm believer that all cannabis use is medicinal. Um, even like Same what here. would fall into yes. the, yeah, exactly. Even what would normally fall into the category of recreational or even like, God forbid, we use the abuse word. But if it falls into that category, I think that um, there's something underlying there that we're not paying attention to. But I don't know. We're probably far away from really uncovering all that stuff um, in regards to. I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? <laughs> sorry, I got trailed off. Oh, oh yeah, no, I was thinking about some of these harsh realizations as oh, yeah, like yeah. as like the, not being able to necessarily train certain things, like things that almost that founder or that leader had to have instilled in them from the beginning. And you're walking in like, dude, you I can't teach like you should own this before you yeah. talk to me. Um Something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, and this might sound pejorative, but I don't mean it as such, but it is cannabis. This is, at the end of the day, it's a hippie's industry. We shouldn't be talking <laughs> about plastic waste. That kind of stuff should be already, shouldn't even be a discussion. We should be already be looking at the recyclable options. We should be looking at social equity. Um, these types of things, I shouldn't have to explain the, the war on drugs to someone and how certain communities have been disenfranchised. I shouldn't have to explain over-policing and how who's more likely to get pulled over and face jail time even today. Um, explaining to people why MSOs, I don't want to generalize and say all MSOs, but why some MSOs are exactly what's going wrong with cannabis and how it's more than just an industry, but it's about how us as humans are interacting with this plant and it's becoming more and more and more industrialized. Those are the types of things that I don't think you can really train or teach. It's like more viewpoints. And unfortunately, I don't see a lot of that eye to eye in the boardroom or whenever I'm doing any of these educational things. Um, where I see that the most, though, is whenever I'm teaching college students because they're also like young and bright eyed and they not only want to learn as much as they can, but they also want to like make sure that the, that the world they're leaving is a better place. And it's like it's very, very enriching for my soul. <laughs> Man, I will say that the difference between just the customer base at the shop, the difference between the 21 year olds and the 35 year olds was yeah the 35 year olds were disenfranchised they absolutely just they kind of just didn't see the out in any of it and the, the 21 year olds are like holy shit like i how to say the 35 year olds when i was growing up and smoking there really wasn't that much innovation in 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 the process i had my plant i could roll it i could stick it in my fucking bong or a pipe that really that was it you know vaporizers every now and then you know like 15 years or so um but now as the concentrates and distillate and uh, aerosolization and the way we're looking at all of this now the newer generation has actually seen the innovation. They've actually experienced like, holy shit, in 10 years, we have come 
X-fold from where we were. And so it almost feels like they think that there's still shit to be discovered. It doesn't really feel like, oh, that island, that pirate mapped out that island already, you know, 60 years ago and everybody knows it as it is. It feels new. It feels like we're exploring the ocean or exploring someplace that we've never been. And I do, I do see that in a lot of the students and the sense of community that they're getting in that exploration too, which I don't see in a lot of under industries. I see mostly in most industries, the, I'm going to go alone in order to go fast, as opposed to I'm going to come together as a, to go further type of mentality. And in the cannabis industry, I do see that we're going to go further together. And that's powerful. I think it's a really, really, it's one of the coolest things about seeing the industry progress. Um, than what I could see. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Honestly, that's one of those things that kind of echoes to the back of the room. It's there's an immense amount of passion that this industry is led with. There's an immense amount of people that are wanting to learn more and wanting to grow more. And like you said, they're kind of like pioneers for this unknown world. I mean, there's always been clandestine people that have been studying and researching and growing for as long as the plant has existed, but now getting like real academia behind it, getting like real, getting W2s behind it, getting yes. like benefits and stuff. Like we're really hitting the beginning of something that I, I really can't wait to see what it looks like in the next 25 years. Um, the only thing that I would probably, I mean, I think all of us that have been involved for a little bit are probably at least somewhat jaded at this point. I think the only thing that would really be another heartbreak would be like seeing the Super Bowl brought to you by Marlboro pre-rolls or something. God, that would hurt. <laughs> I, it would hurt, but I also would tell myself like the amount of access that that would induce to this and the amount of conversations with those who I probably wouldn't have been able to have it with is yeah. it's just like, I think at that, that's the point when, you know, my grandmother, who is very, very set in stone on, on how she perceives some of this, I think that's that point where I would actually be able to, to have some of that conversations with her. Now, again, she knows that I've owned the head shop for as long as I have. And she <laughs> knows, you know, like, and she knows that 10 years before that I was developing water pipes for the industry. And, you know, so there's certain things that they've had to come to grips with. I've been out of the cannabis closet for, 17 years now or some shit, you know? So there is something to that. Um, what is, oh yeah, go on. No, please. Oh no, you're good. I was going to say, I just also wanted, to, also wanted to touch on your one point regarding like students and how they do want to kind of like come together as opposed to go fast and go alone. There's no real division. It's because cannabis makes a student out of everyone involved. We all have this way of bringing our own particular skill set to what we can contribute. Um, I know it sounds goofy, but it's really almost like a devotion. It's really almost like a devotion to the plant. Like I, I sometimes think to myself, like, okay, what am I doing today? What should I be doing for this plant? You know, and it's I recognize that it's a journey that's going to be, even the day I die, there will be so much more work to be done, man. <laughs> Raven, this has been an absolute fucking pleasure, man. I hope. I hope you come back on the show with us and we'll break it down with BC here. Maybe you'll even join us for the 420 special if you wanted. Um, Please. Yes, yes. I, uh, how, can, how, can, how can everybody hear more from you? Where, where can they find Plant Save My Life? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, thanks 
thanks so much for having me on on Dustin. Um, as far as Plant Save My Life goes, it's just a weekly podcast. I mean, you've listened to it. I'm just detailing people who have worked with entheogens like cannabis, mushrooms, even those that are non psychedelic or non psychoactive like Chichawasi or Renakia, green tea, all kinds of stuff on there. Um, that comes out every week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. Just Plant Save My Life. Um, also on Instagram at PlantSaveMyLife.pod. And if you're curious about cannabis education, what I'm doing on a corporate level or working with companies and individuals in their grow or in their dispensary, you can find that at entheowellness.org. Thank you so much, Raven. I got one more thing before we go. Uh, Today, we actually are announcing our giveaway winner from the website. So there's no graphic, there's nothing crazy, but Christopher D, you are the winner today. So I will be contacting you on Instagram and... uh, we're going to send you your mystery prize. So thank you. Fucking thank you, Raven. Yeah, You're amazing, you. man. I, I, I seriously, I genuinely, I really enjoyed this conversation. I can't wait to fucking shoot the shit with you later. Yeah, you as well, man. I look forward to it. See ya.